right, so um, it's so interesting to be preaching on the church when we are so distant from one another right now. But this is where God has us, and so we're going to continue moving through our series. But I wanted to read a quote before I got started from a former professor at Westminster Seminary. It goes like this, a doctrine of the church that does not center on Christ is self-defeating and false. Jesus said to the disciples, I will build my church. To ignore his purpose is to deny his lordship. And that's a pretty heavy quote, but I think it really sets us up for where we're heading this morning. If I'm honest, we probably put the cart before the horse a little bit in this series as the mission of the church, which we talked about in our first sermon, flows out from the nature of the church, which is built upon the foundation of Jesus' lordship which is the central tenet of the gospel. But God's providence is what it is, and we are here this morning looking at the nature of the church. So the question I want to wrestle with is, why is it important that we understand the nature of the church? Well, there's two things that that kind of came to me as I was studying this week. One, understanding who we are will enable us to function as we should. Understanding who we are will enable us to function as we should. And in the same breath, it also provides us with guardrails to keep us from wandering away from God's purpose. So understanding who we are enables us to function as we should, and it also provides us with guardrails to keep us from wandering away from God's purposes. So a quick disclaimer, we only have about 35 minutes, so this will not be an exhaustive discussion on what the church is, but my hope is that we can see that the church is the people of God called together from all the world through the preaching of the gospel for the purpose of drawing us near to Christ so that that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. And the mission of the church is always where this thing is heading. So if you do have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 10, and then we're also going to be jumping around a little bit at other passages as well. And so let me read those two verses really quickly. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so let's take a look. The first thing I want to talk about is that the church is the people of God. And so what do I mean by that? According to Peter... This means that the church picks up where Israel left off. The church picks up where Israel left off. Only this time, one's ethnicity is not even remotely a part of the question or the equation, but rather it is whether or not we are marked by Christ. So he starts off, it says, but you are a chosen race. But you are a chosen race. And actually what Peter is doing here, he's lifting this from an Old Testament passage back in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 20 through 21. And it reads like this. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my 
chosen people, or in the Greek Old Testament, my chosen race, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And so this is really important because what Peter is doing is he's utilizing identical language that he lifts from the book of Isaiah. And also, there's a backstory to this Isaiah passage, a backstory of deliverance, as there is this anticipation of the fall of Babylon and Israel's deliverance out of exile. So what's the point? The church in Christ is where Old Testament Israel was driving towards as the nations are no longer deceived and the good news of Jesus is proclaimed throughout the earth. The text continues. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Again, Peter has the Old Testament in his mind as he, is, as he is writing these words. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, it says this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And again, what is Peter doing? There is identical language to what was spoken of about Old Testament Israel. And again, there's a backstory of deliverance as Israel was freed from the grips of Egypt and established as a people at Mount Sinai. Again, what's the point? Israel was called to be God's representatives on earth, set apart, which is the precise calling that the church is called to. But I think we need to discuss something here as we look at these words. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Two things that pop out, a chosen race and a holy nation. Yes, when we were talking about Israel, we were dealing with an ethnic people. We were dealing with one particular group, but now Peter uses this term, these two terms, to refer to a people that actually draw from every tribe and tongue and nation. So this race and this nation is comprised of all nations, which means there's nothing ethnic, ethnically particular or specific about the people of God, because what God is doing through Christ and in his church is he's fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, that that Israel, which becomes Christ, which becomes the church, will be a blessing to all the nations, a blessing to all the nations. And to what end? Because it says here in verse 9, It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, Isaiah 43 is in the background and it says this, to set forth my excellencies or that they might declare my praise. And so the people of God point others to the one who stepped in and redeemed, the one who suffered and died and became king so that we might live and reign with him. 
And so the vocation, the work, the job of the people of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is to to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the Old Testament people of God, what they used to point back to as their redemption story, they would point back to the exodus, or they would point back to them coming back out of exile. And what do we point back to? But we point back to the redemption story of Jesus. See, we are a people marked by redemption, marked by the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is why Peter says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the reason why we were once not a people and why we once did not have mercy is because Jesus had not yet rescued us from sin and death, but now we have been rescued. We have been brought into the fold, and now our status as not a people is changed miraculously to becoming a people. The beauty of this text is that once again, Peter is dipping back into the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, it says this, And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so what is the point here? The church is the universal people of God. Set apart for the purposes of pointing people to the redemption story of Jesus. That they too might be brought into the fold of Christ. So that others might be brought into the fold of Christ. This is always, this has always been the point of God's chosen people. And we see glimmers of this in the Old Testament. We see that in the book of Jonah, he was sent to Nineveh to proclaim the goodness of God to a foreign people. We saw as we studied the book of Ruth that this foreign woman was folded into the people of God. And so breaking these ethnic barriers was always the goal of the church and always the goal of God and always his, his, his plan of redemption. And now in Christ, we're seeing that fulfilled. And so as we talk about the church, as we understand what it means to be a part of this universal people of God, we have to understand that the dividing walls of hostility that that Pete was reading through as we were worshiping this morning have been broken down. No longer are we divided by race, by ethnicity, but rather we are brought into the fold of Christ. And we are now one chosen race, one holy nation marked by Jesus. And so as we move along in this discussion of the church, I also want to talk a little bit about history. Back in 325, at the Council of Nicaea, the the Nicene Creed was written. And one of the phrases in that creed is that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, the first thing that's really important about this is is that the people of God in the early church, thought it was so important that we understand the nature of the church that they wrote it down in one of the primary creeds of the church, that this is a point of doctrine, that this is a point that that if you disagree with this, you you are bordering on heresy of sorts. And so they, they write this out in the creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so I want to discuss this for a few minutes. 
The first thing that I want to say is that the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Meaning that those of us who bend our knee to King Jesus, Jesus, regardless of where we come from, what socioeconomic, what socioeconomic status we possess, or whatever political party we affiliate with, we are one body of Christ. We are one. From, from beginning to end, throughout every generation, from across the entire planet, we are one body of Christ. Christ. And then it says that not only are we one, but we are one holy people. And as Peter talked about this idea that we are a holy nation, it means that we are set apart. But what do we mean by set apart? Well, there's two things that kind of come into play here. There is a moral component to us being set apart, and there is a missional component to us being set apart. The moral distinction for us as followers of Jesus is that, is that our lives, both individually and corporately, need to reflect something that is peculiar to the world around us, that is different from how the world around us lives their lives. We care about certain things. We care about character. We care about integrity. We care about ethics. We care about doing what is right. We care about life. We care about honesty. We care about peace. We're different than the world. And we have to be marked by this difference, morally speaking. Because we are to reflect the goodness and righteousness of God to a world around us. But not only are we to be morally holy, we are to be set apart for the purposes of God. To be the heralds of God's kingdom story so that others might be incorporated into the family. Remember what First Peter says, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. See, we have a job to do. We have been set aside for a specific purpose, similar to if you have certain tools in your, in your, in your tool shed that you use for specific things. You're not going to use a lawnmower in the snow because your snowblower has been set apart for that specific purpose, just like the church has been set apart for a specific purpose to proclaim the excellencies of God to a lost and dying world. But we can't proclaim the excellencies of God if we don't wrap ourselves in the moral and righteous nature of God. And see, this is what we're struggling with in the world today. As we, as we watch the news, there are people claiming the name of Jesus, yet living in a way that is morally atrocious. And see, that's a problem because that means we lose all credibility in the public square. And no one actually wants to hear our calls to righteousness and integrity and, and moral uprightness because we're not practicing those things. We're not practicing those things as we engage in Twitter and on Facebook, as we go to political marches and, and, and act like children. So God's calling us to something. Because we can't proclaim something that we don't actually live out. To be holy is to be moral, and it's also to be set apart for the purposes of God. And we can't do one without the other. That is massively important for us as we wrap our minds around this thing called Christianity, this thing called the church that we have all been incorporated into through the person and work of Jesus. But in addition to being one holy people, we're also Catholic. 
And not in the big C Roman Catholic, but rather this simply means that the church is universal. One pastor said it like this, the church is not from one ethno-linguistic group or nation. No, the church is universal and in its final form will include people from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is especially relevant right now. As so many brothers and sisters in this country are allowing their love for country, which is not a bad thing, to be intermingled with their Christianity. You see, there's a reason why at Redeemer we don't fly an American flag in our sanctuary. And it's not because we do not love our country, but it's because we recognize that we pledge allegiance first and foremost to a king and a kingdom. And we share that allegiance with brothers and sisters from every single tribe, tongue, and nation. So when we speak ill about other parts of the world, when we allow our leaders to refer to different countries um, with, with horrific language, we are participating in something that is absolutely opposed to what we have been called to as a people. And we have been called to be a people who proclaims the righteousness of God. And we link arms with people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. Even those countries that we are not particularly fond of, we have brothers and sisters there. We have brothers and sisters there. That is so important. And not only do we have brothers and sisters throughout these other countries, we have brothers and sisters who sit across the aisle from us. We have brothers and sisters who have different opinions about, about how we should engage this pandemic that we're involved in. And so we need to be keenly aware of that as we, as we spout out negativity and, and, and comments about them versus us. Because the reality is that us is comprised of so many different types of people. If we understand that the us that we should be living in light of is the people of God, the church, the ones who have been called out from the world and rescued from sin and death. Finally, the church is one holy, catholic, apostolic church. Meaning that we proclaim the good news of King Jesus as it has been captured for us by the holy apostles in the writings of the New Testament. In other words, we preach the Bible. If we are to call ourselves a church, we need to base our teachings on the word of God. And the gospel message that we unpacked last week is the apostolic message that has been captured in the New Testament scriptures and throughout the whole entire Bible. And so when we talk about being one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we are one church that stretches across all of humanity from every generation. And we are a holy people set apart for the purposes of God. And we are founded upon the gospel of Jesus, that he suffered, died, and was buried, and on the third day rose again, and now that he is seated in the heavenly places as king over all of creation. And so while we cannot bury our heads in the sand about the things going on in this world and in our own country, our allegiance, first and foremost, is to Christ, his kingdom, and our brothers and sisters above everything else. That is so important that we get that. 
that we do not fly the American flag over the kingdom of God, but rather Jesus and his kingdom is first and foremost. Ephesians 4 verses 3 through 5 says it like this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then for those of us who are struggling with with that unity and that peace, Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says it like this, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. As members of the body of Christ, are we taking these words seriously? Are we receiving our marching orders from Paul, the apostle, from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, from Peter and the other apostles, or are we allowing our marching orders to be dictated by by social media and by news outlets? This is so important, Redeemer Fellowship. This is so important because we are allowing so many things to divide us right now. Politics, opinions about a virus, whether or not a rapture is coming, and different views about the end times, and you can fill in the blank about the things that are dividing our people right now, both the universal church and even the local church. This is an interesting time in history, and it's through these interesting times in history that our faith is tested. And that our commitment to the people of God, the church, and Christ is tested. And God is calling us to be unified, to be fixed upon Jesus, and not to allow these other things to dictate how we live our lives as followers of Jesus. The final point I want to make is more of a technical point. As we talk about the nature of the church, we talked about how Peter understands what it means to be the people of God, a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, that the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God find their fulfillment in the New Testament people of God, the church. We talked about church history and how, how we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And then finally, I want to talk about the things that mark us out as the people of God, the marks of the church. There are three traditional marks of the church in the Reformed tradition. The first one is the preaching of the word. We cannot allow ourselves to be called a church if we don't proclaim the scriptures. 2 Timothy says it like this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so that's a a message to to us elders as we have been called by God to, to shepherd the people of God, to shepherd the flock in our midst, that we are to preach the word, that we are to be ready no matter when it is, whether we are in a pandemic or not, to be ready in season and out, to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, and to have patience. Jesus talks about this in the Great Commission. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The responsibility of the church, what marks out the church as something that has been birthed by God and not a social club, is that we proclaim the excellencies of God. We preach the scriptures. We teach people to follow Jesus, to observe all that he has commanded us. We did a series a number of months back on the Sermon on the Mount where we were able to dig into the teachings of Jesus, where we encouraged and exhorted one another to live our lives in response to what Jesus calls us to. And so this is what it means to be a church. We are a people marked by the word and we proclaim that good news. There's that quote that always goes around, preach the gospel always using words when necessary. The reality is, is that words are necessary because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. How will they hear if they do not have a preacher? And so we preach from up here, but we are also called as the people of God, those who sit in our pews and those who go out and live amongst this world that we are surrounded in, that they too, that we too as a people, not just on Sunday mornings, are to preach the kingdom, to preach the good news of Jesus, to tell others about this king and kingdom that has raptured our souls so greatly. The second thing that marks the church are the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Jesus took the bread in Luke 22. It says this. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he commands us, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We have been called to participate in this Lord's Supper when we come together as the people of God. We will not participate this morning in the Lord's Supper because we're not together. And one of the primary elements of the Lord's table is that we are together. It's a, it's a meal for all of us to participate in together. And so we look forward to, Lord willing, next week when we can partake of the Lord's Supper together. But also, baptism. And I'm going to read that passage from Matthew 28 again, the, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. See, we have been called to baptize those who come into the faith, that they might be marked out. In the same way circumcision marked out the people of God in the Old Testament, baptism marks out the New Testament people of God, a sign of the new covenant. And so the marks of the church are one that we are to preach the Bible, we are to practice the sacraments, and we are to practice church discipline. And I want to talk about this for a second because I think sometimes we talk about church discipline and we think like, oh, it's, it's we're going to get in trouble, right? This is, this is the way the church can, can, can kind of kind of point you out and call you out and get you in trouble and send you to the principal's office. But that's not entirely what's going on in this passage, in this on number of these passages that talk about it. I want to read something from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. And here's an example of when someone is actually called out and called to task on what they did. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, ought you not mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. 
But who gets removed? Well, in, in, the, in the case of Matthew 18, which is the passage that we go to all the time when discussing church discipline, it's the one who does not repent of their sin. See, church discipline doesn't mean that we don't like someone, something did, and we kick them out. No, church discipline is the role of the church to come alongside brothers and sisters who are struggling in sin, that they might repent and be brought back into the fold, that they might walk again faithfully, loving God and loving neighbor. And so church discipline is actually a call to care for one another, to push one another towards holiness, because remember, we're a holy nation set apart for God's purposes and set apart morally that we should look different from the world around us. But in addition to that, we also talked about this back in Matthew 28 when we looked at the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So church discipline is also the role of the church to build up the body of Christ that we might be presented mature in Christ that we might grow in our faith, that we might grow in holiness and the knowledge of God. And so what's the point? The scriptures call the church to be a place where the scriptures are proclaimed, the sacraments are practiced, and the saints are held accountable for the way we live our lives. And that includes the way we live our lives on social media, that our virtual identities should line up with our identification with Jesus. And so to kind of close out this morning, we must remember who we are. We must remember who we are. We are the people of God in union with King Jesus set apart for the purposes of living out the good news of the kingdom in both word and deed, that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. I say that almost every week, that our role is to be a church that shows the world what God is like. Because right now, the world is looking at American evangelicalism, and they're scratching their heads. Because what is being portrayed on social media, what is being portrayed in the news, what happened last week is painting a picture of evangelicalism that actually doesn't reflect the goodness of Jesus. It doesn't reflect the nature of who he is. See, we are not called to proclaim the excellencies of Biden or Trump. Our job is not to spread the good news of the American dream and capitalism. Nor are we called to spend hours on Facebook reading article after article of things we probably agree with because that's how social media works. It really only shows you the ideas and people who you are in line with. But rather, our job as the church of Jesus Christ is to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and by loving neighbor. And we do that when we live out the gospel in both word and deed so that others might know Christ. That is our purpose, Redeemer Fellowship. That is what it means to be the church. That is what it means to be the called out ones, which is what the Greek term ekklesia means, that we've been called out from this world to show a different story, to show a better story, 
to show a heavenly story, to show the world what God is like. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, Lord God. It is by your grace alone, Lord God, that we stand. Nothing else, Lord God. All of us have sinful inclinations, Lord God. All of us have have history, Lord God, of sin and temptation. And even, even now, maybe some of us are struggling with sin. Father, I pray, Lord God, that we would be convicted, so convicted, Lord God, by your spirit. Lord, that we would have no other choice but to cast ourselves upon you, Lord God. That you might forgive us, Lord God. That you might change us, Lord God. Lord, that you might form here at Redeemer Fellowship a people set apart for your purposes, marked by righteousness, marked by holiness, marked by a love of you and of neighbor, Lord God, marked by the cross, Lord. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.